Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. When Confederate cannons fired on Fort Sumter in April 1861, the United States had only 16,000 soldiers and its medical staff numbered just 113 doctors. And here's another fun fact. Taking into account all the doctors then practicing in the United States, possibly as few as 300 had witnessed surgery. Witnessed, I said. That's the verb, witnessed. Or, let alone, seen a gunshot wound. Over the next four years, all of those numbers would dramatically increase. To meet the unprecedented casualties of the American Civil War, American medicine had to make unprecedented changes. As my guest Carol Adrienne describes in her new book, Healing a Divided Nation, how the American Civil War revolutionized Western medicine, these changes are reflected in every ambulance, every vaccination, every woman who holds a paying job, and every black university graduate. Carol Adrienne is a documentary filmmaker based in Philadelphia. Carol Adrian, welcome to Historically Thinking. Oh, thanks, Al. I'm really delighted to be here. So by the time people have heard this, they might might already have heard a very strange podcast in which you are the host of Historically Thinking, and I am a guest, and you turn the tables and we talk about history. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. that that got recorded before this podcast is a is a part of this podcast history that is not yet ready to be revealed to an unready world. But let's start. It's getting, it's getting nice reviews, this book. Uh, and one of your reviewers said, it's been decades since anyone has written a book on the medical dimension of the Civil War for a broad reading audience. So two questions from that. One, two. Um, why is that? And why is your book different than what has gone before? Well, I think that the subject is so complex that people rightfully have researched individual facets of it. They've looked at the surgery, at the tools, at, and, and any Civil War buff knows it, the categories in which it can be broken down are infinite. You, you, know, you can talk about specifics of, of types of warfare. Anyway, the, um, the medical aspect of it has always been very focused on the clinical. And when I began doing my original research, it slowly dawned on me that the ripple effect of that was much larger than just the clinical. It really was the people who peopled the medical tents and the hospitals and the volunteers and the inspirations that came from people working in Europe, like Florence Nightingale, Joseph Lister. It really was a much bigger story. And it led to things, including the International and American Red Cross. It really was foundational to the first Geneva Convention, 1864, for the care of the wounded and their caretakers. It, so it was a huge ripple effect outward from those clinical facts. Mm -hmm. So my book is different in that I started to look at that and it was an astonishing change. The tectonic plates of societal caste and gender were really rocked by that event. 
And we can see that just in the numbers that I cited in the introduction. The idea, I mean, I don't know how you came up with a figure. Maybe it's right. Maybe even if it's three times off, if a thousand doctors in America had seen a, had witnessed a surgery, um, in four years, <laughs> a hell of a lot of more people had experienced surgeries, seen surgeries. So the effect of that alone on the medical profession, let alone trauma, I mean, the creation of trauma surgery, or at least the, the genesis of trauma surgery, it's immense. It's absolutely immense, that alone. You're right. It was, they got so good, they could do an amputation in under six minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you are faced with thousands of people, I mean, if you can imagine an emergency room with lines for miles, that really was what they were facing. So it completely changed. And as you said, it it is, it's the genesis of, of trauma medicine, because where would you get that many casualties? The, the Civil War, the, the estimates are that there were at least a million casualties. So that's deaths and injuries. And disease, you know, how many people suffered from that and the changes in medicine that really were forced into being by those horrendous statistics. So let's talk about a little bit of the state of American medicine in 1860. Um, what, how were people trained? How were, where did, what, where were the medical schools? You know, that sort of thing. Um, and what were their techniques? What do they what do they spend most of their time doing? Okay, well, let me take it back to the first the first medical school that the thirteen American colonies had was the University of Pennsylvania Medical School in seventeen sixty five. So, European studies in medicine really were four years long. Plus, they had more clinical instruction. Now, in America at the time, while there was the University of Pennsylvania's medical school, there were medical schools which really were faculties of professors who did lectures. There was no um, body that decided whether a degree would be conferred or not based on technical testing. It really was so loose. I always think of it as the, the Wild West of American medicine. So you didn't need an MD. You could now get one in America in the latter half of the 18th century, but there was no governing board. So, uh, and the doctors actually, they mixed their own medications and prescribed them. So there, nothing was, there were no standards across the board for that kind of thing. And hospitals were places where, Poor people went to die. A hospital, really, at that time, um, there were they were outgrowths of almshouse infirmaries. And if you were ill and you had any money, you had a doctor come to your house. So the hospitals really began as more like hospices. Um, there was the largest hospital in America was in uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, forty beds. That was was a big deal. So five years later, you have more than 400 hospitals in the country with 400,000 beds. So it was a huge turnover. Now, the interesting thing about University of Pennsylvania Medical School, the faculty had been trained in Europe. So people would go to Scotland or London generally to get training. 
And it was the first time in this country that a medical school was part of an institution of higher learning rather than these independent organizations. So, uh, so it really comes from there. And Penn stays the only one for several decades uh, before there's really expansion and standardization. So, so there's a very famous um, picture, which I think I remember from my childhood, it hangs in the Philadelphia Art Museum, Thomas Aikens of the, the, the Gross Clinic, the Gross which Clinic. is gross by name and gross by nature. Um, and it's, uh, so could you describe what's in that painting and it, sort of its importance? It, it, it's, he was, I think, doing it after the Civil War, but in a way, it's, it, he painted after the Civil War, but it really is a sort of encapsulation of medicine in 1860. It really is. And it's done in the circular operating amphitheater. So it's, uh, you're right, it's the artist Thomas Aikens from Philadelphia. And the painting is the size of a wall. And it shows mm, Dr. Enormous. Gross removing a tumor from the thigh of a patient who was under anesthesia. So this is a big deal, this being knocked out totally during surgery. Dentists actually brought anesthesia to the surgeons. But that painting, Dr. Gross was extremely instrumental in in training. He wrote one of the two or three most valuable books about how to be a doctor in the Civil War. He was Pennsylvania Dutch. He spoke a dialect of German until he was a teenager and then learned English and then went through medical school. And he was a very famous author and professor of medicine. So he was much older at the time of the Civil War, but his book, uh, along with some others by uh, the British Sir Thomas Longmore, a treatise on gunshot wounds, and Gross's introduction to surgery. I mean, they said that some of these young guys were operating with a book in one hand. You look at right. the diagrams. Because so, their previous experience, if they're really fortunate, is to be sitting in an amphitheater watching Gross operate. Right. That, if they were really privileged mm-hmm, <laughs> to see yeah. that. Yeah, it was a brand new thing. And when you think about it, too, the uh, we're fortunate in the preservation of a lot of medical surgical kits from the Civil War. And you can see the handles are ebony or mother of pearl or ivory, things that never could have been sterilized, even though that was not a concept at yeah. the time. And lots of when you read the primary source documents or the memoirs of a lot of these medics, you can see they comment that. If a, if a sponge dropped on the floor, they rinsed it in cold water and kept going with the next patient. Right. So <laughs> they, yeah. it, it's, a, it's pretty amazing. Almost every surgery in the Civil War was followed by infections. But mm-hmm. astonishingly, the estimate is that 75% of the amputees survived the surgery <laughs> and the recovery after. So that's pretty amazing. So um, if I recall correctly from when I used to teach this, uh, the Battle of Shiloh of April 1862, as many people are killed and wounded in that one battle, I think on both sides, as in all the previous American wars from 1775 onward combined. Uh, so that's the level of, of casualty lists that uh, Americans begin quickly begin to confront. Uh, on an unprecedented, an unprecedented scale. What, um, 
Now, one reason for that is the armies are much, much bigger. Um, so that's simple enough. That's why casualties are bigger. I mean, you know, a battle of twenty thousand battle of twenty thousand men is a is the biggest un, combined is the biggest battle of battle brandywine, biggest battle of the revolution. Uh, that's a that's a trifle by the end of the Civil War. Um, so what what's some of the reasons for why the Civil War is deadly, other than just simple numbers? I want to point. I'm glad you mentioned Shiloh, though, because. There's one point about Shiloh that drove something home to me in that women were not given a place in medical treatment. There were no professional nurses at the time. And, mm-hmm. and the Battle of Shiloh was so terrible that news of it traveled all over the South, really. And women volunteered and took trains to the location, and the male doctors would not let them help. Mm-hmm. So... That's we'll get the, back. We'll get back to that. We'll come back to that. But what happened was that this is a point in time when the technology of weapons improves drastically. So there have been centuries uh, where musket really referred for many years to any long gun, any shoulder long gun with a smooth bore. So the Civil War sees the introduction of rifled barrels. So this allowed the ammunition to spin at at a higher rate going through, and it really improved the accuracy, the velocity, penetration of the new ammunition called a mini ball. So muskets for centuries had used the musket ball, which literally was was like a lead marble, completely uh, globular. And Mm -hmm. they would wrap it in a piece of fabric so it didn't bang around in the in the barrel as it went through and get really erratic. And then they had to push gunpowder down into it. So it was a lengthy reloading process. Now the rifled barrels of these guns just, and the new ammunition, which was conical really. And the base of the mini ball was rifled to fit into those grooves. So it really, it doubled and tripled the accuracy and and range of those guns. And then one of the most important developments and, and a terrible irony, I think, there was a young inventor named Richard Gatling. And he had invented uh, things for planting wheat and he made a small fortune. And in his late 20s, he caught smallpox and he recovered, but he decided he really should go to medical school and learn more. Well, he went to medical school and achieved an MD, but he decided to stay an inventor. And although he had been born in the South, he really was a Northern sympathizer, very deeply and seriously in his soul. But he was so affected at the beginning of the Civil War by these hordes of young men who were dying of every known disease and some unknown who were getting horrible wounds. So he invented what we know as the Gatling gun. He made a metal cylindrical drum that was rotated by means of a hand crank, and he mounted six gun barrels on it. So this thing could do like 100 shots a minute, where before you were maybe three or four if you were really good. And this, it just changed the face of combat and warfare. It And was the great ancestor of the all the assault rifles of today, the AK-47, the 
you know, AR-15. This is the great grandfather of those guns. And to me, the, the saddest factor of the whole thing, he, Gatling wrote about it after the war and his, his intention had been to make a weapon that was so powerful that it would eliminate the need for large armies and reduce the disease and the injuries. So mm-hmm. that's a terrible. Well, let's tragedy. talk. <laughs> let's let's talk about disease. I heard uh, maybe it was another podcast saying that most bad diseases are all some form of diarrhea uh, <laughs> prior to, prior to the modern era, which is kind of true. I mean, cholera. I mean, it's all about being dehydrated ultimately. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the Civil War, uh, uh, I guess the estimates are now up to like seven, eight hundred thousand dead, and uh, now for the total conflict, and the vast majority of those are not combat deaths, but deaths by disease. So what's killing people in the Civil War? Why? Well, all the common childhood diseases, measles, chicken pox, mumps, mowed down young guys from the country who had not been exposed to city life and, and as large numbers of people. So that took out so many young guys. And then malaria, especially the battles in the South, known as a tropical disease, um, malaria could incapacitate entire regiments. Uh, yellow fever sneaked in and out. Um, one of the most feared and contagious diseases was smallpox, which coincidentally was the only disease for which there was a, a vaccination available. So they did, there were forced vaccinations. Both armies actually originally insisted that all soldiers be vaccinated against smallpox, but once the situation had grown so huge, it really wasn't possible to keep up with that. But there are some awful instances of, you know, thousands of people who were in uh, New Bern, North Carolina, where there were camps of escaped slaves and free blacks and poor whites who had congregated near army camps to for safety. And smallpox broke out among them. And they called to Washington for uh, the smallpox vaccine and ground it up and mixed it with glycerin. And one day they got all the provost guards and they drove 6,000 people over a bridge across the Trent River and vaccinated each one <laughs> as they were let off on the other side. So that is the first and largest mass vaccination we know of in America. So how did uh, doctors and the medical profession, because we're going to soon expand this category to nurses, uh, how did they respond to this crisis of medicine that was uh, created? Uh, you uh, you talk about the Surgeon Generals of the United States and of the Confederate States, and the, they alone are very interesting personalities and innovators. You are right. They were two the uh, the two who were the most influential throughout the Civil War in the South, Samuel Preston Moore, and in the North, William Hammond. So they were pretty disparate in age. Uh, Moore was 48 when he was tapped to be the Southern Surgeon General, and Hammond was only 34. So Hammond, brilliant and brash, (laughs) 
got in his own way an awful lot and offended a lot of people along the way, but he did achieve great things in his short tenure as Surgeon General. Now, Moore did serve, he was the primary Surgeon General throughout the war. The North really cycled through four, but Hmm. Hammond was probably the most dramatically influential. But they had so much in common, these two guys. They had been brilliant students. They had served in the military. They both had a deep interest in botany, which I found interesting. And later we find out, like, when medicines weren't available, they were trying to make anything they could from the flora of the region. So, uh, but they both instituted the new pavilion hospitals, which Mm. were built like spokes on a wheel, and they made these decisions independently. So it was they both improved their medical departments to the nth degree. We should, I mean, I'm going to jump ahead here and let's talk about the hospital because this does not seem like an innovation to people. Um, When they think about medical technology, we're thinking about, you know, new types of surgery. We're talking about drugs. Drugs aren't anywhere in the Civil War. Uh, That's going to take a while. All the drugs that they're making, they make you vomit. They make you, you know, whatever. They're still working on the humor system of Galen when it comes to drugs. And that's just the way it is. But the hospital itself was an innovation. Could you describe this pavilion, this, this spoked pavilion hospital and how it changed things? Sure. Um, these designs actually had been used in England and France for a while. Now, in America, uh, since the Revolutionary War, really, they would just kind of utilize an existing building, a barn, a house, a factory, a hotel as hospitals, which was the case at the beginning of the Civil War. But when the casualties multiplied into the mega thousands, they needed other solutions. And also these existing buildings really didn't provide for convenient treatment of patients or ventilation. So they both of both the North and the South adopted these pavilion hospitals. So when you see pictures of them, they're long wooden sheds, basically. And some of them are arranged like spokes on a wheel. Some of them are a half circle, but they're all lines of these long, narrow buildings. So it was much easier for staff to move through them. So they would take an area of, now it had to be near running, clean running water and woods preferably for fuel. It was the placement of these buildings was pretty important. Philadelphia had the two largest uh, pavilion military hospitals in the North, Satterley and Maurer. And they really could, they could handle over 3,000 patients each. So there had just never been 3,000 patients at once to deal with. Speaking as as Philadelphians, where where were those hospitals? Uh, Maurer was in Chestnut Hill and Satterley was in West Philadelphia in an area known now as Clark Park. Oh, Clark Park. So, you know, and in a way, you have to have a hospital to get the germ theory <laughs> because you have to where to be able to actually have a medicine that's based on the germ theory, you have to be able to control the environment. And up until the creation of this modern hospital, you can't, the germ theory is nice, but you wouldn't be able to create a sterile environment. You wouldn't be able to watch over things. You wouldn't be able to keep, you know, infections out of a place. The hospital, you need the hospital 
to, to develop as a cult, a med, part of medical culture and a culture of medicine in order to get to an effective germ theory. You're right. Because you really, for one thing, you need the numbers so mm -hmm. you can get a sense of like what's going on and how powerful it is. And, and they began to glimpse the beginnings of that kind of understanding of, mm -hmm. of segregating contagious patients. Now, they could see it even if they didn't have an explanation for it. So their practice was actually preceding theory. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, practice preceding theory. Yeah, because um, Pasteur in Paris was working on the germ theory, and, and he was proving that they don't arise spontaneously. But mm -hmm. there really is no data available at this point. But the Civil War doctors did figure out, like certain diseases, they did in these, especially in these pavilion hospitals, they set up wards for smallpox patients, for yellow fever patients. Uh, they sometimes kept the post-surgical patients apart so that the infections didn't spread. But you're right, you you wouldn't have known without those numbers that they began to so so they begin to do the first really effective separation and segregation of, of disease patients. So there was, um, we, I, now there's one medicine that actually is useful, and especially given what we said about uh, malaria, that's quinine. Right. So could you talk about Francis Porcher and developing quinine, sort of homegrown quinine in the South Absolutely. during the con conditions of blockade? Mm -hmm. I said, you know, botany was so important to both surgeon generals, surgeons general. And Porsche, I'm not sure. I was corrected the other day. Somebody said it's Porsche. So I don't need to <laughs> deny him his, his français. But, um, well, probably it's, it's probably was Pulcher. <laughs> it's probably at the time. Oh, could have been. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he, this, he was a phenomenal student. Latin, Greek, and botany was his thing. So he came into the Confederate Army as a doctor, but uh, Surgeon General Moore tapped him. What happened was that the Union naval blockade was so effective that the South really was cut off from all the medications that they had imported from the North and from Europe. And quinine, as you said, was the most effective thing for dealing with malaria. They gave it to horses, for, you know, <laughs> for right. blanders. I mean, it, it, horses are pretty important. Right? And horses, I mean, horses and mules, the army depends upon it. I mean, hell, the Wehrmacht invaded France with like, you know, two brigades of tanks and like everything else supported by horse-drawn wagons. Uh, horses are important for a long, long time. Very, and America had not experienced any epidemic diseases among livestock. Right, but these horses were, you know, getting killed in battle, getting underfed. I mean, they were in terrible shape. But the quinine was such an essential factor for so many diseases. It really was one of the only truly effective pharmaceuticals that they had. So, more uh, commission. Porcher, Porsche, Poucher, <laughs> to do a study of the, uh, the fields and forests of the South to find out what plants could be used to make viable medications for the Confederate Army. Well, he spent a year on this, supported by his wife and his mother, 
and he produced a 600-page book about now this is within 12 months so obviously yeah, the testing is limited they they found some things that that were somewhat effective as narcotics but they really weren't able I mean yours is only 280 pages so that's you know that's <laughs> I know I have a long way to go <laughs> before right. they are you did it in a year so I mean the fact that the testing isn't up to snuff is like okay just the, the fact that you got to 600 pages is impressive enough really like I'll try yeah. this one. So what what did he use as a substitute for quinine? And what without being able to get the bark from South America? Well, they never found a viable substitute for okay. quinine. Yeah, it had come it, it, you're right the cinchona bark. Yeah. called it Jesuit's bark from South yeah. America where it had been used for for uh, tropical diseases. But um really blockade running was if you got any that was mm-hmm. how you got it for the most mm-hmm. part, mm-hmm. and it went for thousands of dollars an ounce. Well, let's talk about Major Letterman, uh, maybe an ancestor, I don't know of David, but, uh, and the ambulance, and ambulances as a technological innovation. I mean, the, because it, we talked about this in a, uh, earlier this year, talking about World War I medicine when they brought the car as an ambulance, but the first step in trauma surgery is getting the victim into surgery as quickly as possible. So the ambulance is absolutely key. Absolutely. You're right. I mean, the the first battle of Bull Run really is a primary example of that's when they realized uh, that there was no way to get all these guys off the field. I mean, you just had hundreds and then later thousands of wounded that they could not remove from the field. So there were no designated vehicles for ambulances at the beginning of the war. They would grab a wagon that was, you know, filled with supplies or food or something. If, you know, there there were battles where where men had to literally find their own way to hospitals yeah. in a nearby city. It happened outside Richmond, where, where they hmm. really just crawled in, you know, themselves. So so Major Jonathan Letterman, another guy who had been a terrific student, he was very loyal to the North. He um, he was a, a wonderful doctor, and he saw the situation and, and found it intolerable. And then things began to move very quickly. He got permission from President Lincoln and the Surgeon General, and he developed an ambulance corps. I mean, this is for an army that didn't issue standard stretchers to get yeah. guys off the field, or they didn't know, like, the stretcher bearers should all start off on the same foot so they don't jostle the patient. Um, so Letterman goes to town, and he creates an ambulance corps that is the reason we have ambulances today. When you hear those sirens, that is an echo of the Civil War uh, mm-hmm. to get you off the street and, and into a medical facility. Um, so Letterman was really it was one of the most important advances of the civil war. And it's, it's amazing. Like all these things, how fast it's implemented and how fast it's done. Yeah. And, and this, in this army with 116 doctors, like, you know, a year later after the start of the conflict, they've got dedicated drivers, dedicated, especially, I mean, eventually they, they come up with special wagons, right. With spring, you know, springs. And then they have the stretchers that fit in the wag, the, the wagon and et cetera, on and on and on and on. You're right. 
and and there were a lot of different designs for them and which you can see in the copies of the medical surgical history of the war of the rebellion they sketched every plan for every type of ambulance whether it was horse drawn or it it really he did drills for how to load them oh that's fascinating yeah of course of course you would have to have that yeah yeah, you can't ju- you can't just half-ass this. <laughs> you have to. You have no. To, no. <laughs> there was no half-assing. Uh, so by the time Antietam, which uh, is uh, I think twenty-three thousand casualties in ten hours, they mm-hmm. cleared the field in twenty-four hours. <laughs> which seems awful to us, but imagine what it was like at Shiloh. Oh. I mean, at, Shil- at Shiloh, people were lying out in the rain, you yeah. know, for for and sometimes for days until they died. Or you know, and and Waterloo, and what, we could go on, but the, that it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous change from Waterloo. It yeah. is, uh, yeah. Gettysburg, where after the Confederate retreat, there were five thousand Confederate wounded soldiers lying on the field. What they had mm-hmm. to do with Gettysburg was utilize trains. So mm-hmm. they set up field hospitals near the train line. They they only could handle so many. So if you were deemed like strong enough to survive the journey to Philadelphia or New York in a train, but it took two weeks to get everybody who had been wounded at Gettysburg but, off the field. But that's also leads to, did that lead to the hospital train? It did. And it's the first time that trains were used as hospitals in America. Um, trains had been in the country since the 1830s but never used this way. But but when the Civil War came around, both North and South would do the same thing, which was ship supplies to the battlefield because they were set up like, you know, a movie set beforehand. You know, you really made a date to fight mm-hmm. and shipped everything you're going to need in and then the troops. So they shipped things in by train and then they used them to carry the wounded and the sick out again after the battle. So it was pretty grim. They they traveled in boxcars. They would put branches or pine needles or anything available on the floor to get these guys. And it was no short journey. And the South was actually doubly hampered because they had so many different railroad companies that the gauge of the tracks was different. So you couldn't necessarily have a straight journey. Plus, they were wood-fueled, these locomotives. And they would literally, there were so few men in the South who weren't already conscripted into the army that they would sometimes have to stop the train, have guys get out and chop wood to be able to keep going. But the North was in better shape. The North had far more track than the South. And they also began to work on hospital cars. So a doctor, um, Alicia Harris, saw what the situations were. It was there are awful descriptions about riding in some of these trains with a mix of the living and the dead. And uh, he saw the situation. So he made a bunch of innovations. He thought first that he designed a car where you could hang the stretchers from rubber, uh, rubber links. So Mm -hmm. you could put him, you didn't have to move the soldier out of the stretcher before you loaded him uh, into another bunk in a car, you hung that same stretcher from these India rubber links. And then he went ahead and he worked with a local railroad company and designed a car 
that had bunks and holders for the stretchers and that people could move through to treat the patients, unlike these boxcars, which really were sealed, you know, virtually. So they make a huge difference in hospital transport, the trains. And again, it's with the South, which had much more manufacturing capability the north the north right which had much more manufacturing capability than the south was was really ahead of the game there um just a couple things briefly before we move on to uh nurses um anesthesia we talked talked about earlier as you said that began as a sort of uh, a dentist what began as a parlor trick or as a as a vaudeville thing with with laughing gas and then it went to dentists and then dennis introduced it to Doctors. So, was were, were were people generally when I, when people amputated in the Civil War were they under anesthesia? They, the estimate is that almost all surgeries were carried out with either ether or chloroform. Okay. And yeah, the, there had been experimentation largely with ether, and and a northern dentist actually, William Thomas Green Morton, uh, he pushed for. The, the dentists were experimenting with it. Now, he personally, he once he he realized the properties of it, he anesthetized his goldfish, a pet hen, and his uh, cocker spaniel. Oh, okay. He's moving up the t- moving up the chain, up I guess. Yeah. Chain, yeah, yeah. And they all recovered. So, and he, oh. so there were several people working on it, and he actually patented that, and he had hoped after the war that that would you know, be a lucrative situation for him, but the government just kind of said, oh, great, thank you. <laughs> but he is known as a man who who changed the face of surgery with the reduction of pain. Mm-hmm. And he would actually go out on battlefields after a battle when the wounded were lying there waiting for rescue and, and anesthetize the guys to give them a window from their pain. So okay. that's another... Not, not a court. Yeah, that would land you a certain level of malpractice suits in modern anesthesiology, but I can see the point at the time. Um, I, I hadn't thought about this until I read the book, but that rehabilitative medicine, basically what we're talking about, physical therapy, is obviously created in America by the Civil War. It is, and also the advent of effective prosthetics. It mm-hmm. got to the point where everybody in the country had somebody in their family or knew somebody who was an amputee at that point. Mm-hmm. And it, amputation had always been re- looked at as a form of weakness. So if you had lost a leg in an earlier war accident, you were regarded as less than. And mm-hmm. there was some uh, association with it affecting your your mental capacity. It really, it, it was, it, mm-hmm. it was regarded as feminizing in men and amputation. Well, this is strange, but true. Which <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. So when you get the, the civil war and, and it, amputating was the fastest way to save a life. You know, they did not have time for, or, or the technology for resections no. and, and stuff like that. So they learned certain things like to, do it as far from the torso as possible, not to cut at a joint. They they really picked up some some quick tricks, and they did. They had like assembly line surgeries, but but again, most of these people did survive. 
So uh, two companies, notably Palmer in the north and Hanger in the south, both uh, were begun by men who had lost a leg as a child and they had worked to make their own. They used barrel staves and hinges and all kinds of things to make a better prosthetic. I mean, it used to be kind of a whittled wooden stump that was painful to attach and difficult to wear. And some people chose to use crutches rather than rely on those. But once the prosthetics begin to improve, so did life. And, and they were saying that it made the difference under the chandeliers. So in the drawing and dining rooms, people who might not have been accepted back into that particular society, if they had you know, less of a, an appearance of missing a limb, were more likely to be accepted. Mm-hmm. So uh, those companies are extant today. And, and now they make prosthetics uh, that are allow Olympic level competition. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to uh, nursing. Uh, which in 1861 was very new. Florence Nightingale, Mary Seacole, legacy of the Crimean War. People have read about it in the newspapers, I suppose, but they haven't really developed. Um, I, I, I doubt whether or not there was like a science of nursing or a pract- even a practice of nursing. People just knew they existed. Um, and then they tried to adapt it. So could you describe how, how modern American nursing uh, began in the Civil War? Sure, it really does. You're right. It, it traces to Florence Nightingale, who was British and who was a very bright and extremely well-educated young woman with a lot of outre ideas about healthcare, and she she was oddly excellent at data collection and analysis. Mm-hmm. And when the Crimean War came about, she went to help and. Boy, her moment had arrived. She was there for that. And she started cleaning hospital situations and getting patients off the floor and making sure that the medic, any medications were given regularly and that it was well ventilated. Well, some American women did travel to the Crimea or later to England to study with Florence Nightingale, who wrote a book called oh, Notes on Nursing. And hmm. that book has been regarded for decades as one of the founding principles of professional nursing. So there were people who had known and worked with Florence Nightingale, and they really brought that to America, including Dorothea Dix, whose main interest at that point had been the care and rehabilitation of prisoners and mental patients. Mm-hmm. So uh, she and Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman with a medical degree in America, although she was actually British um, and could practice in both countries. Uh, so they began training nurses. Well, the male doctors really were very upset by the whole situation. And there was one doctor, a group of women arrived after Shiloh, in fact, at, at the hastily set up hospitals there. And, and they refused to allow them to help what the doctor in charge of the hospital said, no flies or women will be admitted. <laughs> so, uh, but they, but they had a problem. They had a manpower shortage exactly. and, and without, and without that, without women, uh, without nurses, the flies would be admitted um, because you needed someone to control things like that. You need, and, and you need someone to change the bedpans. 
and and which was going to cut down on the disease and the dysentery and the cholera and all the rest of that stuff. So women come as a, I guess, as if there's a virtue of necessity here. Oh, absolutely. And incredible strength of character. They mm-hmm. refuse to be turned away. Tens of thousands of women, north and south, from all over the country, black and white. They said they claim this is as much a woman's war as it is a man's war. And they didn't. They took rejection and went back again and, mm-hmm. and insisted. And and you're right, with the paucity of manpower that was available, they finally had to just say, okay, you know, we, we need you. Mm-hmm. And they, and they developed skills and they taught one another and they really, uh, there, there isn't a, an, the opening of a professional school of nursing in America until later, until the 1870s. So <laughs> nobody had been to school, but boy, they came out in force and they, and they did not give up. So there are thousands and thousands of women, many unsung, who just said, we cannot tolerate this and we're here to fix it. Well, some are, some are sung in different contexts. Harriet Tubman worked as a nurse. But, um, but Cornelia Hancock, who I know because I think her house is like eight miles from where I grew up. Uh, I used to pass, I used to pass, well, it's like a lot of things until I read your book or until I thought I, I had forgotten about the historic marker I used to drive by all the time. Uh, you know, right. But, uh, and I grew up with a bunch of Hancocks too. They're all related. Um, but they, um, but who, who was she and what was her contribution to, 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 to nursing? Cause she was a, she was important at the time. She was delightful. <laughs> Cornelia was, has been brought up as a very nice girl in Philadelphia. She was from a Quaker family and, mm-hmm. and educated. And when she heard about Gettysburg, her brother, one of her brother-in-laws was a doctor and she thought, I, this is so horrible. And as you said, she read about it in the newspapers and mm-hmm. she wanted to go and help. And so he agreed that she could, she could go as a nurse. So she tried to get accepted by the superintendent of nurses, Dorothea Dix, but she was too young and too pretty for Dix and, and <laughs> who said no. Who was that? Who was that? His, she is like the, the Webster's Dictionary example of a tough cookie is Dorothea Dix. Dragon Dix, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but boy, she took care of her. Nurses. She she did. She did. And uh, so Cornelia, and this is some gutsy stuff. She just got on the train to Gettysburg and she figured when I get there, we'll see what happens. And when she got there to quote her, she said, there was no more cavil about age. She got off that train. It was like an alien landscape. So she was, um, they assigned her to a hospital on the, on the field and they got her, uh, lodging at the home of one of the doctors who actually lived in Gettysburg. Well, she was apparently such a charmer and she picked up nursing like so quickly and, and the the soldiers adored her. They wrote a song for her, a dance tune (laughs) called the the Hancock gallop. (laughs) She really, she knew that she had, she had found her mission. She, she really spent her entire life in support of nursing and literacy and supporting the underdog. She really was charming and remarkable. Mm-hmm. 
what um, people are expecting uh, us to talk about Clara Barton. Uh, And I was actually, what I learned in this was that Clara Barton wasn't technically a nurse. She was actually, in some ways, more hardcore than just a nurse. Could you explain that Clara Barton, the friends of the missing men of the United States Army? Because uh, I found this actually kind of shocking, what she actually did and why she was the angel of the battlefield. Really? I mean, she always referred to herself as a relief worker. Mm-hmm. And she was never formally associated with any of the big volunteer organizations, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, U.S. Christian Commission, but they supported her. She had a thing about getting medical supplies into the battlefield at early instead of, you know, last in line. So she would start those wagons the day before. She would go out onto the field. There was one instance where she was tending to a wounded man on the field. And a bullet went through her sleeve, killed her patient, and left her intact. But mm. she was fiercely dedicated, Clara. She broke through so many glass and medical ceilings uh, between working in the uh, in Washington uh, in the U.S. Postal Office, and she she just she was such a strong personality for somebody who'd been so shy. But mm-hmm. she, um, yeah, she, she, she started the, the American Red Cross. She was very influ- influenced by the International Committee of the Red Cross. And, but, and what were you going to say? I would say that her job, I mean, her task as she saw it oh, and yes. her people was to go out onto these battlefields, which are, I mean, literally sites of carnage and gore that a modern soldier even would find incomprehensible. Yes. And here is this delicate Maryland woman <laughs> uh, going around <laughs> looking for looking for pot looking under piles of the dead, looking for people who are still alive. And well, this has been a problem from the throughout the 18th century is you know the people who reach the wounded first are looters, uh, usually from a local village. But here's she is like changing the entire battlefield by going out looking for the wounded to begin triage, what we would now call triage. Yeah, she did, and she um, she was really sensitive to the problem of the unidentified dead or mm-hmm. their unidentified burial places. Mm-hmm. She was very instrumental with Andersonville Prison and those who <laughs> had died there after the war in her the office were. She answered 60,000 letters about missing soldiers. She was able to identify about 22,000 burial places uh, in the prisons, especially Andersonville, of of soldiers. And that's an interesting story all by itself. Yeah, absolutely. And how she found out where they were buried. But, um, yeah, when when the cemetery at Andersonville was named as a national his place of national historic importance, um, Clara raised the flag there that day. Huh. Um, so let, let's finish up by talking about uh, some organizations whose titles would um, they instantly start to make me fall asleep. Uh, ladies Aid Societies, uh, United States Sanitary Commission. United States Christian Commission, uh, sanitary fairs. They don't sound like much, 
But what, what's really interesting as I was thinking about it is this is the first time that medicine and health has become part of a mass movement. And these are the, these are the foundations of a mass movement for the care of the sick and the dying. So could you describe the importance of, let's just f- focus on one. Let's focus on the United States Sanitary Commission, which is an amazing organization, a huge organization. And like nine out of, 99 out of 100 people have never heard of it. It's true. I never had before I started no. that research. And it's astonishing. I yeah. mean, what happened was that at the beginning of the war, women would get together and like, ladies groups and in parlors and, and knit knit socks and and things and cook food and make bandages and and do whatever they could to take to the hospitals uh, um and and they became pretty effective well at some point men said yeah you guys are doing a really good job and we'd like to formalize that for you thank you <laughs> so <laughs> They did. And the United States Sanitary Commission was born. And interestingly, um, uh, Olmsted, who Frederick, was, Frederick Law Olmsted, landscape Olmsted. founder of Central Park, all the many, many parks throughout the United States. Yes. Very well-known landscape architect. As you said, he d- designed the, uh, the he landscaped the grounds at the Capitol building. He was yep. in Berkeley. He was all over the place. Everywhere. Um, so he was... Uh, he designed Central Park in, in association with another older, more experienced mm-hmm. architect. And uh, he became the general secretary of the U.S. Sanitary Commission. Well, the Sanitary Commission took it. They realized they had to educate the troops in, in appropriate care and, and dietary needs. So they had pamphlets printed, which they distributed. They sent scouts to examine what the, the uh, camps were like. Some of these camps were just, I mean, they were living in total filth. Yeah. And some w- that were on lower lands near water. They had repeated outbreaks of malaria. So they were really trying to instruct an entire society on how to Hygiene. live in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, it was it was a huge organization staffed by thousands of mostly volunteers, and they held these sanitary fairs, uh, which were like expos, um, mm-hmm. and they would last sometimes uh, ten days, two or three weeks, and they had all kinds of events, and it was the latest art and music and cattle auctions and dances and and musical performances. Um, and they raised literally millions of dollars, millions yeah. of Civil War dollars. You have you have a picture of the in the uh, in uh, in the plate of the buildings of the Great Central Fair in aid of the U.S. Sanitary Commission, Logan Square, Logan what will become Logan right, Circle, right 1864. The main library. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's huge. And these, like, I think the World's Fairs, in many ways, uh, as owe as much to these as to uh, as to the Crystal Palace Exposition, and they are enormous, as you say. It, they are like the war bond drives of the Civil War. Um, they're, you know, yes. yeah, yeah, and they, they're, and they're, and the way that they, De Tocqueville would have loved it. Uh, it's the way that they harness civil society, you know, for the benefits of, you know, the the action of the citizens of the United States, as seen in its army, you know, the Army of the Republic is really quite something. And importantly, it elevated women because the fairs mm-hmm. really were pretty much run by women. 
So it, society realized that women could handle responsibility, you know, clerical duties, organizational efforts. So it was it was a big coming out, really, for women in a working situation. Well, there's a lot more to talk about, but I want to wrap this up. And but I want to wrap it up by asking you, uh, how did a filmmaker uh, come to this, and when can we expect the movie? <laughs> I, I was working on something completely different, and of my course. mom, Rose DeWolf, who was a journalist in Philadelphia for her entire career, one night she told me as we were going around. Logan Circle, where the chairman was, she said, Philadelphia has more Civil War statuary than any city in the country. And I couldn't stop wondering why. No battles were fought here. I knew there were textile mills, but I didn't know why. So while I was working on my Music and the Brain documentary at the <laughs> library there, I thought, you know, I thought since the, the physical placement is really telling because it was literal yards from where that great fair was mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. Yeah. So I started to Google on these subscription databases, Philadelphia Civil War. And this story came up that was enormous. And the deeper I looked, the bigger it was. And I wasn't entirely happy to run into it, but I thought I felt like it had dropped in my lap. Nobody had done a serious documentary series or presentation about Civil War medicine. And I thought, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> So it it's more, it's more than, yeah, it's more than just amputations. Yeah, it is. So you, you think you told me that you, you got to 40 out of 80 voiceovers and then you wrote the book. Yes. So you've, you've got another 40 to do. I do. We're about a third of the way finished the documentary series, which is called civil war medicine. There's going to be four one hour programs and uh, COVID put a stop to our recording. And then mm -hmm. I got an offer to do the book. I, I thought, oh, well, we'll do a picture book. But they wanted a real book. So <laughs> it was interesting because as, as much research I, as I had done, the book brought me closer to all those people. It's, mm -hmm. it's the most amazing example of true heroism that, I, I, that I've ever witnessed personally. And, and it's, it's an example of Americans at our best. Well the, years. well, the book is Healing a Divided Nation, How the American Civil War Revolutionized Western Medicine. My guest is Carol Adrian. Yeah. Carol, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking uh, for the second time. <laughs> what a pleasure, Al. Anytime. <laughs> and thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 